welcome to Brandon Speaks. If you are looking for a fascinating podcast related to optimal health, rehabilitation, and human performance based on how the body actually works, that is authentic and at times a tad animated, you have come to the right place. Go grab a notebook, a pen, and some organic popcorn and get ready for a journey with your host as he discusses health-related topics and perhaps life in general based on research and his own practical clinical experience. The contents of this podcast are for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be considered medical advice. Please consult a licensed healthcare or functional medicine provider before embarking on any health, fitness, or dietary change. And now, here is your host, Brandon J. Alleman, owner and operator of Innate Movement and Wellness. Let's listen in and learn as Brandon speaks. All right, everyone. Good morning, or good afternoon, good evening, whatever it happens to be whenever you're listening to this. Uh, today is Monday. I believe that's right. Yeah, Monday, January 4th. Hope everyone had a Merry Christmas and a great New Year. Um, hopefully, you guys were able to celebrate and, uh, you know, celebrate the holidays, celebrate Christmas and New Year's with your family in whatever fashion. <clears throat> You know, works for you uh, in, in these crazy times that we find ourselves. Uh, today is going to be episode 11 of Brandon Speaks podcast. Uh, today I'm going to touch on just a few things that I usually write about at this time of the year. Uh, one, or really it's just one thing and I'm kind of going to uh, make my way through a, a couple of other topics as a spinoff of the one thing. But the one thing that I'm discussing is the concept of the ever-popular, uh, ever-wasteful New Year's resolution. All right, now, uh, if you're familiar with any of my work and you've read anything that I've written, you know already that I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. As a matter of fact, I think they're a complete waste of time. Um, most people, I forget where I read this, so forgive me for not having the source, but uh, when it comes to New Year's resolutions, I believe 96% of them are abandoned before mid-February. Right, so that about gives you uh, all you need to know about New Year's resolutions and whether or not you know anybody's actually going to stick to that. Uh, they're usually just kind of haphazard things that people say, uh, you know, oh, well, it's a new year, new me, so on and so forth. And not to sound like an ass, which apparently I'm pretty good at, but... You know, if you want to boil it all but down to brass tacks, if you were really serious about your New Year's resolution, it really wouldn't be a New Year's resolution. It'd be something that you were probably already working on. Uh, so I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that people shouldn't set goals. Uh, I'm a big fan of goal setting. Uh, that does matter. Uh, but I'm just not a fan of, of just haphazardly saying stuff and, you know, not actually having any sort of an action plan uh, for any you know specific period of time in order to accomplish whatever uh, you know somebody is saying that they want to, to to resolve to do right so and I'm sure there are people that are going to be listening to this and be like well you know you're pretty much just you know a New Year's resolution is setting goals so really you're just you know saying you don't like New Year's resolutions but you do appreciate goal setting is you know kind of asinine and ass backwards because they're you know six of one half dozen of the other I disagree. Uh, goals 
setting goals appropriately is completely different from just quote unquote having a new year's resolution right i know countless people who have had countless new year's resolutions for the short 40 years that i've been on this planet and very few of them have ever accomplished anything in terms of new year's resolutions right i never i never have a situation where I sit down and I tell myself, all right, what's my New Year's resolution? You know, I don't ever do that. Uh, I do set goals, uh, but those have nothing to do with the new year. Uh, they have to do with, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish personally, professionally, and spiritually. And those goals are regularly revisited, so on and so forth. So I, I, I don't have much good things to say about lip service. And New Year's resolution, I mean, holy shit, if you're someone who goes to any gym, any commercial gym regularly, you're probably extremely familiar with what happens around it. Well, probably not this year because, you know, everyone's still running away scared of the COVID-19 boogeyman. But normally this time of year in a commercial gym, all hell breaks loose, right? You get hundreds, if not thousands of new people, depending on how big your gym is that have their new year's resolutions to be healthier which sign up you know at a fraction of the cost that it normally takes to sign up for a gym membership and all they end up doing is paying the gym membership every month and like i said by mid-february the gym is back to being at its normal capacity uh, you know for what it would be in a regular year you know let's take the uh you know the COVID 19 restrictions and all this other kind of crap out of it but uh you know, by mid by mid February, everybody who resolved to be healthy with a new gym membership isn't there anymore. Uh, and I, I've witnessed that every single year that I've trained in a commercial gym, which has been oh, you know, I don't know, whatever, 22 years now, <laughs> happens every single year. Uh, and I'm sure those of you who visit a commercial gym with any regularity can back me up on that statement. So, New Year's resolutions, not a big fan. Goal setting, huge fan, right? Because there's a lot that science actually has to tell us about goal setting, okay? So I've actually written an article on this uh, back in the day. I don't know if I have it on my member's site or not. If not, I probably need to put it up there. Uh, but I wrote an article. Uh, it was called Anatomy of a Goal. And part of that article talks about what some of the science tells us about goal setting, right? So uh, I believe it was uh, in the early 1960s. It was either 1963 or 1964. I can't remember off the top of my head. The Harvard Business School had asked 100 of their freshmen uh, if they had a list of, of written goals that they wanted to achieve in their entire lifetime, not uh, what they wanted to do for this year, not what they wanted to do you know, as part of a New Year's resolution, but what did they actually have written goals for what they wanted to achieve in their lifetime? Uh, only seven, if I remember right, seven of those students said that they had that written down on paper as, you know, a goal or a series of goals for their lifetime. 20 years later, a follow-up survey was done on the same individuals and found that only 10% of those original 100 students had successfully attained what they wanted in life. And remarkably, all seven of the students with the, with the written goals were part of that 10%. So basically out of 100 freshmen in Harvard Business School, which, you know, they tell me that's a big deal. I don't know. I didn't go there. Um, 10 out of 100, 20 years later, had actually accomplished to that point what they wanted to. And seven 
of those 10 were the only seven that had actually written down their goals. You know, if you study uh, a guy named Brian Tracy, big personal development, business development guy, uh, I'm a big fan of his work. Uh, he has a book, it's called Time Power, uh, where he states that fewer than 3% of all people have clear written goals that they're actually trying to achieve. And those three, the 3% that do are usually the most successful in every field. Less than 1% of people will actually rewrite and review their goals on a regular basis. That's something that I try to do personally every quarter. To be fair, it should probably be something that's maybe done monthly. Depends on what your goals are for you know, a, a particular time frame and, and what you're trying to accomplish. And there's a whole bunch of different variables that go into it. But uh, you know, basically looking at Tracy's work, less than 3% of people write anything down. And less than 1% review what they've written down with any regularity to see if they're on track to hitting their markers. Right? So there's tons of other stuff. I believe it was uh, in the early 2000s. It was right around the time when I first uh, started looking at that kind of stuff. Uh, USA Today ran an article. Uh, not that I care much about what's in print media these days, but uh, USA Today ran an article discussing New Year's resolutions. Uh, and one year before, the newspaper had interviewed people about their resolutions in uh, whatever the year was before. 2000. If it was 2003, they uh, ran an article in 2002. Uh, and it divided the responses for the people in the in the survey t into two categories: people who had written down their resolutions and those that just thought about them. So, like I said, lip service. Yeah, I got a New Year's resolution. Here's what I want to do. And other people that had actually written them down. One year later, four percent of the people who had made resolutions but not written them down had made any changes whatsoever. On the other hand, forty-six percent of the people who had written down their resolutions had actually followed through on them. Right, so for me, that just tells me my takeaway from that is, you know, putting things down on paper or, you know, taking a thought out of your head or a goal or a resolution or whatever, taking it out of your head, using a pen or a pencil, if you prefer, uh, and putting it to paper is the very first step into manifesting whatever that thought, goal, resolution is, whatever, into an actual physical reality. Right, you're taking it out of the thought world, you're bringing it into three dimensional, hard concrete world, and you're putting it on a piece of paper. Right, so without a goal, it's pretty much damn near impossible to succeed at anything. I don't really care what it is you're trying to be any good at or what you're trying to do. Without goals, you're not going to get there. Uh, so we know that most people don't have any goals. So it's not, you know, a big surprise, at least not to me, uh, that the vast majority of people are you know for the most part fairly unhappy with their lives <laughs> uh you know I, I hate to sound like that but you know whenever i look around that's that's pretty much a lot of what i see um now you know whenever you in in, in the article that i wrote you know I, I went through you know exactly how to set goals and you know what matters you know goals as as most things in life should progress through through kind of three phases uh, you should have i goals you know, once you get those squared up, you should have we goals. And once you get those squared up, then you should have all goals. Uh, so, you know, your your I goals and the goals that people are likely to be or hopefully uh, going to be writing down at, at this time of the year. Uh, those are those are the ones that are intensely personal. 
right? The ones that have to do with, with what you are personally trying to accomplish uh, in your life. For me, I sit down uh, every quarter and review uh, personal goals that I have for myself, professional goals that I have for myself, and, and spiritual goals that I have for myself. Uh, and I look at those every quarter and see, you know, am I on track? You know, how, did this, how does the plan to achieve this particular goal need to be modified if I'm falling behind schedule? Is the schedule realistic? All this kind of stuff, right? So you have to, you have to be able to set goals that are, that are SMART. That's an acronym. Uh, specific, realistic, attainable, uh, or excuse me, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. Uh, so when you're setting a goal, it has to be specific. You know, if you, that's another reason why I think resolutions are kind of worthless is because they're very non-specific, usually pretty vague and extremely general. Ah, you know, it's a New Year's resolution. I just want to be a little healthier. What the f- does that even mean, right? That's that's not nearly specific enough. You know, oh, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to lose a few pounds. Okay, where? You know. In, in, in what manner would you like to see that happen? And what's the plan to actually get there? You know, and what is a few? Because right, a few pounds to me could be six. You know, a few pounds to somebody else could be 60. Right, so what do you want to lose? Not that it's all about weight loss, but that's usually what, the only thing anybody gives a shit about, especially this time of year. Right, so you want to have you know, some goal setting that's done you know, by, by intelligent design, uh, you know, so, so to speak. Uh, and you want you want them to be specific. You want them to be measurable. You need to be able to measure whatever the hell it is you're doing. You can't improve what you don't measure. All right. So come up with some sort of a system for measuring and quantifying your progress uh, along your way to achieving this specific goal that you've set yourself. You need to make sure that it's attainable. Right. Don't set some goal that's completely unrealistic, like I'm going to lose 60 pounds in a month because you saw it done once on The Biggest Loser or some other ridiculous television show that doesn't make any sense. Okay. Uh, so make sure it's an attainable goal, uh, so, uh, re- you know, and, 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 and something that's realistic. Uh, you know, so that's S-M-A-R-T in it. So timely is the last aspect of, of setting a goal. You, you want to have a time frame, right? Without, a lot of times without a time frame, it doesn't really, you know, a time frame does a decent job of, I don't want to use the word force, but it's what I'll say, of kind of forcing you to, you know, put the rubber to the road, right? So that you, you, you've got some, some sort of a, a concept or um, a feeling of having some sort of pressure on yourself to achieve something, right? Well, without that, then you're, you're just, you're real lackadaisical and you're not likely to really take any action steps toward getting where you want to go because there's, it's so open-ended that it doesn't matter if you get there, you know, two years from now or 30 years from now. Yes, you know, big goals like, hey, you know, I would like to be a fully self-realized individual. Okay, well, holy shit, that's a lifetime pursuit. So, no, I don't care if you're there next year because you're not likely to be. Um, but there could be some markers at the one-year mark that you would be looking at. Right, so setting goals, being smart about them, and actually writing them down, creating an action plan of some sort that takes into account the time frame in which you are looking to achieve your specified goal, and then revisiting that stuff at whatever frequency is necessary to make sure that you are on target with what you're doing. Right, because if you have a plan, you're far likely to perform better than you are if you have no plan. 
And even if the plan starts to suck, you can modify the plan so that moving forward and in the future, you don't have uh, necessarily to deal with the extent of, you know, very large roadblocks, so on and so forth. Uh, any any plan worth its salt is actually going to have contingencies built into it that's going to account for roadblocks or you know you know life throwing you a curveball at some point because that happens you know one thing about plans is that no plan ever goes according to plan All right so I don't want to get into I could probably go I could go the full hour on just goal setting and uh, what I've learned from from lots of different people, uh, lots of books, lots of writing, lots of people who are you know far more successful and way smarter than I am about how this stuff should be done. And I've taken all that stuff and synthesized it into a system that works fairly well for me in terms of being able to achieve what I'm trying to achieve. Do I, you know, uh, you know, my goals for 2019? I, I reviewed them just before uh, December. Did a pretty good job on hitting. Uh, the vast majority of those maybe missed the mark on a couple of them, but they, they weren't necessarily as critical as the ones that, uh, you know, I was able to meet. And I've got a whole new set of things that I've I've, I've set forth that I want to do and achieve, you know, within the next three months, within the next six months, within the next year, three years, five years, ten years, so on and so forth. Put all that stuff on on paper, revisit, revamp all that stuff as I go. However... I want to get into a couple of the things that people tend to have on their list at this t at this particular time of the year. You know, the New Year's resolution or whatever. Uh, the goal is usually for a lot of people involving some something that resembles some form of weight loss. You know, put your individual spin on it how you want. A lot of people will have their New Year's resolution being, hey, I want to start a new year. I, I, I want it to be different, right? I want to lose some weight. I want to be healthier, so on and so forth. So as a result of that, people start kind of grasping at straws, right? And there's a lot of things that are going around that are very popular right now that people who are you know, setting these goals or having these resolutions at this time of year are likely to latch on to. Right, things like calorie restriction, things like intermittent fasting, because you know that's all the rage nowadays. Or uh, you know, maybe somebody's going to jump on a keto approach uh, or whatever. Which I've kind of discussed uh, some of the perils and the pitfalls of uh, you know a, a ketogenic approach to nutrition in you know whatever the hell episode it was is the episode where i talk about carbohydrates uh episode five or six somewhere about i don't know whatever um you know and i'm, I'm gonna touch on i guess this is one of those times where i probably should have had a plan <laughs> coming into the podcast uh this morning you know kind of just running like a chicken with my head cut off trying to get something uh put out that's of decent uh, quality and information before I start working with patients and clients for the day. Um, so having a plan for this thing would have been a benefit. Uh, but I guess I'll, I'll touch on the, the calorie restriction and the intermittent fasting kind of thing. And I, 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 did, I did discuss the whole calorie restriction situation and calories in versus calories out and figuring out your caloric needs and all that kind of stuff in... I think it was my, I think it was episode 10. I think it was my last podcast. 
Um, don't remember what I titled that though. Maybe it was, uh, I don't know, maybe it was female weight loss. I can't remember. Um, espresso hadn't kicked in yet this morning. But, uh, you know, the whole calorie restriction and in particular the intermittent fasting thing. First of all, you know, what, what what's passing off right now is intermittent fasting would, would probably be something that's more akin to time-restricted feeding. Uh, and you could you could probably go ahead and throw calorie restriction in there because, you know, what what people are doing while they're doing their intermittent fasting is usually also restricting you know calories. So what I see going on with the intermittent fasting world is is really time restricted feeding, where people are just saying, okay, from the time I wake up in the morning and you know whatever, six o'clock, seven o'clock. Usually people are giving themselves about an eight hour window or thereabouts uh, where they can actually eat some food. All right, so they say, okay. I woke up at 6, I have until 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock to eat food, and after that, I'm not eating anymore. Or, you know, they went to bed at 10 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night, and they're not going to eat again until noon or later the next day, and they're going to eat from like noon to 7 or noon to 6, right? So they're going to give themselves about a 6 or an 8-hour window where they can actually consume food and get some calories and, and nutrition into the system. And after that, it's, you know, it's game over. It's, it's water. Uh, and then, you know, all, depending on the camp that you're listening to, all sorts of different things can be done during the time when you're not eating from, you know, herbal teas and cleanses for this and that and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. You might stick a crystal up your rectum and face east 50% of the time. I don't know. All sorts of crazy shit's happening. It blows my mind all the time. But, you know, this is a situation and something that people are jumping on left, right, and center. I'm bringing this up because already it's January 4th. I've had probably at least 50 messages, emails, whatever, questions about, hey, it's 2021. You know, thankfully 2020 is over, which for whatever reason, people seem to think that just because the calendar flipped that shit's going to be different just on a, on a different whim. Um Nothing's going to be any different for you in 2021 than it was for you in 2020 unless you do different shit. Um, so anyway, uh, hey, you know, it's the new year, blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking about doing this intermittent fasting stuff. What are, you, what are your thoughts on intermittent fasting? What are your thoughts on fasting in general? Well, in general, I think it's a terrible idea. Uh, in general, I think intermittent fasting is a scientific way to turn yourself into a type 2 diabetic. Um, and it's, you know, right now it's, it's, it seems to be the be end in the be, be all end all that everyone's talking about for their health issues. So is that really the best way to shed some of the unwanted pounds? Because again, let's be honest, that's, that's really the main reason why anybody makes any changes in diet, particularly at this time of the year. Uh, so is it really the best way to go about doing that? And further and potentially infinitely more important than, whether or not it's going to help you lose a few pounds is, is that really going to do anything to improve your overall health and longevity? Right? Because I've always, as I've always said, and I'll continue to say, as long as I can draw breath, you need to be healthy in order to lose weight, not the other way around. Okay. So if that's the, if, if that's our true goal, which is what it should be, in my opinion, not that, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with wanting to lose a few pounds, um, you know, I'm not shaming anyone because they say they want to lose weight or I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings or be uh, politically incorrect or any of that nonsense that really, really gets under my skin. 
what I'm trying to do is tell the truth. And those are a couple of questions that I think need to be delved into and that require a little more than the on-the-surface claims to fame that are spouted by people who supposedly know what they're talking about whenever it comes to this whole concept of intermittent fasting and calorie restriction or whatever. First of all, you know, every single one of us does a pretty de- decent job of fasting uh, every night. It's called sleep, assuming you do that, uh, right? You know, we should be getting, hopefully, you know, around uh, seven or eight hours of solid sleep. Uh, less than six is absolutely terrible. Check out uh, podcast number whatever on uh the basics and the ins and outs of sleep. Uh, but the, the the general theory of intermittent fasting and or calorie restriction is that you fast or you eat less than some, you know, maybe there's a randomly assigned amount of calories that you're going off of. Maybe there's not. Maybe it's just, okay, here's a set time period where you're allowed to eat food. You know, you eat until you're, you know, uh, somewhat full or whatever. And, you know, you wait a while and you go about your business and, once you get to the end of your allotted time, you, you can't eat anymore. Um, you know, but the general theory behind that is that you, you eat less than what you would normally be eating. And as a result of that, your that has the capacity to slow down your metabolism a bit. And as a result of slowing down your metabolism, you're going to kind of produce a little less of what they call oxidative stress. And then that kind of allows the body to begin to cleanse itself, which will normalize your weight and allow you to basically, you know, think you're drinking from the fountain of youth. All right, so that's the general theory on, all right, well, if I, if I restrict calories and restrict how much I'm eating, and a lot of people... Uh, in the calorie restriction world, we'll point to, you know, longevity studies that say that, you know, the thing that extends lifespan the most is uh, calorie restriction or not overeating. Uh, okay, I can buy that to a degree. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's in uh, in line with uh, the vast majority of research on longevity. Uh, because I believe the thing that extends longevity the most is actually a, a tryptophan-free diet. Uh, but I don't have time to get into the details of that. But anyway, uh, you know, calorie restriction and not overeating, those two things aren't exactly the same. I, I would agree that not overeating is pretty key <laughs> to whatever. I don't guess not overeating is pretty key to to establishing good health not overeating is certainly a key aspect of you know not gaining unwanted weight certainly can be an aspect you know a beneficial and 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 productive aspect of not or of of helping somebody to lose uh, a few pounds right so but you know avoiding overeating doesn't necessarily mean that you have to restrict calories right you can eat the right amount of calories for what your physiology requires at any one given time without overeating, right? And in previous podcasts, I've discussed, 
you know, how to go about figuring that out and how to go about getting that done, right? So when it comes to calorie restriction or intermittent fasting, you know, might you, might, will you lose a few, a few unwanted pounds? In most cases, yes, probably so. Um, and in the vast majority of those cases, I would say that the weight loss that's usually experienced is probably the result of the fact that you're in somewhat of a calorie deficit, right? Uh, and I, I talked about that again, and I think it was episode 10. Um, you know, what I've always asked people is unless you plan to do that until you process through what we call a physical death, you know, what the hell are you going to do whenever you stop, stop fasting or stop restricting calories, right? So if that's, if, if, if that's something that you're going to do indefinitely, and you're going to sustain that for the extent of your natural life. Okay, fantastic. Right, but if not, what are you going to do whenever you stop fasting and you stop restricting calories? And further, is your physiology going to be able to effectively rebound from the calorie deficit and the fasted state that you created for yourself? Right, and from what I've seen, most people don't recover very well from that kind of stuff. All right, so one of the ways that, that we like to try to discuss things in my house personally when, when I discuss things with my wife and even when I discuss things with my kids uh, is to try to make an argument. We, you know, we take a stance on something and we try to make an argument for something that we're against or we try to make an argument against something that we're for. Uh, that typically try, you know, that, that gives us, you know, at least the illusion uh, or the perceived illusion <laughs> that we're maintaining some level of open-mindedness and we're, we're able to bring a larger, more sort of holistic approach to our discussions. You know, so from, from in the spirit of that and from that standpoint, I can see some benefits from a calorie restriction uh, slash intermittent fasting slash uh, time-restricted feeding. Okay, by far and away, the first benefit that I see from doing stuff like that is that you eat less shit. <laughs> that's, that's the easiest thing that I can say that would actually be of benefit from people restricting calories and or fasting to any degree, right? So when I say fasting, I mean, you could be talking about intermittent fasting. Fasting is anything that is below what you require to sustain your physiology at any one given point, you know, so fasted for me would probably be, you know, if I'm only eating 2,000 calories a day, I'm probably in a fasted state, right? Because I normally eat a lot more than that, usually between three and 4,000. So if I'm taking in half of what I'm normally taking in, that's a fasted state. 2,000 calories might be a shit ton of food to a regular person, right? So it's all relative. But one of the potential benefits I see from intermittent fasting or fasting or calorie restriction is that there's a potential for a lot less consumption of garbage food. You're not going to be intaking as much synthetic man-made nonsensical uh, sugar you're not going to be eating as many you know additives preservatives pesticides you know all of the uh you know petrochemicals that are found in our food the the endocrine disruptors that are found in our food so on and so forth even if somebody has an absolutely you know terrible diet full of foods that are coming solely out of boxes cans and bags if they're eating less than less of that then technically they're consuming less garbage food so on that end i would say bravo at least you're doing yourself some semblance of good by not eating in as much crap and not treating your stomach like a garbage can as much as you normally do fantastic uh beyond that i would say <clears throat> and and a big one would be uh, it's it's a decrease in the consumption now, all of this is assuming that someone's not doing 
you know, something completely ridiculous like doing intermittent fasting or calorie restriction or whatever, and they're still eating, you know, fast foods. You know, none, none of that stuff is really going to apply, you know, if if all you do is, you know, eat, you know, uh, two out of your three meals uh, instead of three out of your three meals from Taco Bell, are you doing yourself any good? Yeah, maybe, you know, about the same amount of good as, you know, pissing on a forest fire. Um, but that's one way that I would say, okay, you know, what you're doing right here could be of benefit. Another, another, another benefit would be, uh, it decreases the consumption of potentially problematic amino acids, uh, which really there's only three of those. It's a uh, tryptophan, cysteine, and methionine. Those are the ones that become more of a problem. Your requirement for tryptophan which is the amino acid that everybody blames uh, why you fall asleep after Thanksgiving dinner or lunch or whatever because because of the tryptophan of the turkey. Uh, your requirement for tryptophan as you age actually decreases uh, steadily until eventually it gets to, to zero. You don't really have much uh, requirement for tryptophan. Uh, tryptophan, cysteine, and methionine are the three that are that are problematic. Can't remember if it was cysteine or methionine or both that were uh, pretty damaging to the thyroid and in, in higher amounts, so on and so forth. So decreasing the consumption of potentially problematic amino acids could be another benefit to calorie restriction, intermittent fasting, or fasting in general. And possibly the number one thing that would be uh, that would come out of that from a benefit standpoint. One second, I'll take a. Uh, espresso break here okay potentially the number one thing that would come out of all that kind of stuff is restricting or decreasing the consumption of polyunsaturated fats polyunsaturated fats or you know in in my book I mean, there's there's a lot of public enemies out there when it comes to health, but polyunsaturated fats are, are pretty high up on the list. Um, those are usually going to be, your, you know, I did, a, I think I did uh, in the fats podcast uh, a little more on this kind of stuff, but uh, polyunsaturated fats, those are the ones that are found, usually they're going to be liquid at room temperature, right? So they're commonly known as the vegetables, the, you know, the vegetable, seed, fish, nuts, seed, soil, and uh, soy and other oils. You know, including olive oil, but, uh, you know, that's a little bit better, especially if you can find it first cold-pressed. It could have some benefits, uh, and if it's used uh, cold, uh, it could have some benefits. But uh, polyunsaturated fats or not your friend if your goal is health, longevity, weight loss. I don't care. Polyunsaturated fats are no bueno. Right, they're unstable, especially when they're heated. So the most unstable oils that are in general use and over-recommended, uh, in my opinion, are the omega-3s. That's, you know, particularly your DHA and your EPA. Your, you know, you got people running around popping fish oil, cod liver oil, krill oil, and all this stuff, you know, like they're Skittles. Uh, and I've seen that kind of nonsensical recommendation of omega-3s and all that kind of stuff for about close to 20 years now you know i've seen recommendations that has you know people eating you know three to six grams of that stuff in a meal in an effort to supposedly decrease the inflammatory potential in the body and swing the inflammatory potential in the body towards 
uh, more anti-inflammatory and, and to tend to try to stabilize blood sugar by, you know, decreasing the glycemic load of the meal. Uh, one among many of, of the problems with that particular approach is that uh, increased uh, levels of our increased intake and levels of DHA are known to occur in the obese and, and, and in diabetics. There, there was some pretty good research done in 2018 uh, by Madison Sullivan and some others. Uh, and that's associated with an increased risk uh, or the, the increase in the DHA uh, in the obese and in diabetics is increase the association with uh, reduced mitochondrial enzymes. Right, so mitochondrial enzymes are basically your uh, quote-unquote metabolic enhancers. Right, your mitochondria are the little things inside of your cells that produce all of your energy. Right, so when it comes to to polyunsaturated fats, uh, they're 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 pretty much marketed and promoted to be of benefit for everything that they're terrible for. <laughs> Uh, I've, I've written about that extensively uh, in, uh, in uh, an article that I wrote called The Truth About Fats. Um, and, you know, I cite a number of different researchers uh, that have proven this stuff over and over and over again uh, for extended and long periods of time. Uh, but... Uh, you know, your omega-3s and all this kind of stuff, your polyunsaturated fats are marketed and promoting as being healthy and safe. And legitimate research has documented that unsaturated fats, particularly polyunsaturated fats, can do the following. Number one, they can suppress your immune system. Immunosuppression is not good, especially right now. Just throwing that out there. Polyunsaturated fats damage the thymus gland and promote immune deficiency. That's well documented in the literature, right? They used to use... Uh, polyunsaturated fats in paint, if I remember right. And then they figured out how toxic they were. And so they changed and took polyunsaturated fats out of paint and put lead instead. Uh, and also polyunsaturated fats used to be, uh, back in the day, uh, even within medicine, they used to use polyunsaturated fats as for, as part of, uh, of uh, anti-rejection therapy post, you know, whatever, organ transplant, so on and so forth, give massive injections of polyunsaturated fats to suppress the immune system to the point to where it wouldn't attack the newly placed organ, All right? So immunosuppression uh, is, you know, not good, and it's a, it's a huge issue that can be created by an excess intake of polyunsaturated fats. Polyunsaturated fats block glucose from entering a cell to be used in energy production. That's something that's known as the Randall cycle. Uh, tons of research on that kind of stuff. I think I, I went into a little more detail on that in the in the uh, in the in the podcast on fats. I think I did that one. If I didn't, I need to. Uh, I'll have to check. Uh, polyunsaturated fats can create hypoglycemia through lowering blood glucose because they they can hyperstimulate the beta cells of the pancreas to create uh, hyperinsulinemia. So in other words, polyunsaturated fats can stimulate the cells in the pancreas, which produce insulin, which can increase your insulin output, which can drop your blood sugar below optimal levels. Okay. Polyunsaturated fats also increase the biological actions of estrogen because it blocks estrogen from uh, sex hormone binding globulins. 
and I believe it also can break the bond. If estrogen is bound to a sex hormone binding globulin, I believe polyunsaturated fats play a particular role in breaking that bond. I may be wrong about that, but I do believe I read about that somewhere, just can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, so either way, either it blocks estrogen from binding with sex hormone binding globulins or it breaks the bond between estrogen and sex hormone binding globulin. Either way, you have more estrogen running around unbound and unchecked in the system, which basically increases its biological actions. And estrogen, oddly enough, uh, pulls oxygen from your tissues and organs and is a glucose waster. It's a vitamin B6 waster, right? And none of that is any good. Uh, polyunsaturated fats can suppress cellular uh, energy production, and it, which inhibits, it, that's going to inhibit optimal thyroid function uh, because they decrease uh, glucose oxidation and increase lipid peroxidation. That's going to slow your metabolism down, decrease your energy production, and creates a hypometabolic state. Uh, polyunsaturated fats increase vascular tension. That's no good. Uh, that's accomplished through activating something called the pro, uh, something called protein kinase uh, protein kinase C, I believe, is how the vascular tension is increased. It increases digestive stress, which is not great. Um, polyunsaturated fats inhibit proteolytic enzymes in the gut, so basically those are the enzymes that are responsible for helping you break down your proteins. And remember how essential protein is to optimal health. Um, so the result of that ends up being, you know, maldigestion, malabsorption, and overload in the liver and creates a huge burden. It's a huge metabolic burden for the organism. Uh, polyunsaturated fats inhibit the conversion of glucose to glycogen and favors the production of lactic acid, and that also leads to an increase in inflammation. All right, so that's not, not necessarily a comprehensive list, but those are some of my top things that come to mind off the top of my head, and I've... I've written about and talked about that list so many times I could you know spout it off drunk and blind in one eye but the detrimental aspects and effects of, of excess polyunsaturated fats go far beyond that uh, but at least that begins to paint somewhat of a clear picture right so if you've if you've followed anything that I've said or anything that I've written you know that in my opinion due to the direct and the indirect effect of polyunsaturated fats on thyroid function consuming them is not in the best interest of anybody who truly cares about his or her health or well-being, right? So yes, I would say if you are going to be doing intermittent fasting, calorie restriction, time-restricted feeding, so on and so forth, by default in doing those things, you're likely to decrease your polyunsaturated fat consumption. Possibly not because you could be, you know, still doing the fasting thing or the calorie-restricting thing and still popping fish oils like they're Skittles, uh, but if you're going from a food standpoint and you're consuming less food than you normally would, then theoretically you'd be consuming, I guess, depending on what foods you're, you're cutting out and what, you know, what someone's doing. <laughs> you know, if I was to make an argument for the fasting type of stuff, I would say, okay, well, at least if you're doing that, you're probably going to be consuming less polyunsaturated fats which would be of benefit. However, there's plenty of ways to do that without having to fast, uh, such as just not eating foods that are super high in polyunsaturated fats, consuming adequate amounts of saturated fats to help the body detoxify from polyunsaturated fats, 
and consuming copious amounts of pro-metabolic foods, which are beneficial for the thyroid, the gut, and cellular energy production. So there was a very well-respected researcher on the thyroid. Do uh, his name was A.J. Hulbert. Stupid body of work on the role of thyroid hormones and and fast, uh, fatty acids in membrane fluidity. Right, so that's talking about cellular membranes. Uh, which kind of regulate what gets into and out of a cell, so on and so forth. So, interestingly, interestingly, uh, uh, Hobart proposed that uh, there were certain uh, animals or mammals and birds that had the highest metabolic rate and the greatest longevity often had one key feature in common. And that key feature was that they generally had a low saturation of polyunsaturated fats, which was determined by something that's called the PI or the peroxidation index. Okay, so the opposite was actually true for animals with a high PI for for uh, polyunsaturated fats. They exhibited a decrease in longevity. Right, so it's not. You know, as I said, whenever you look at the longevity stuff, it's not as simple as, oh, calorie restriction goes the longest way for longevity. No, not necessarily. You've got tryptophan restriction. You've got polyunsaturated fat uh, restriction and decreases in the peroxidation index and all these different things that also increase someone's longevity beyond calorie restriction. And there's ways to get those things done without restricting calories. Um, So uh, Hobart has a quote. Uh, which I do have, he says that there's an inverse relationship between the peroxidation index of skeletal muscle phospholipids and maximum lifespan of mammal and bird species of different sizes. Right, so basically what you have is that there's a theory that permeates the scientific community. Right, it's a very, it's kind of like one of those theories that's been a theory for so long it's kind of accepted as a law even though it's still just a theory. Uh, And it's called the rate of living theory. And the rate of living theory basically says that an increase in metabolism generates an increase in reactive oxygen species. Right. Or basically an increase metabolism generates an increase oxidative uh, increases in oxidative stress. So as a result, if you slow the metabolism down, you're able to produce less reactive oxygen species, and that supposedly is beneficial and productive. Uh, That's part of another reason for the buzz around fasting, intermittent fasting, and time-restricted feeding, so on and so forth, is that metabolic rate decreases. Uh, So of course, that suggestion is kind of nonsensical. Uh, and and many people get confused about efficient thyroid function, particularly the utilization of the thyroid, enhanced metabolism, and, and potential oxidative stress. An interesting side note is that whenever you refeed fasted subjects and people who are on uh, ketogenic diets, it's well known that it depresses thyroid hormone responsiveness thyroid hormone receptors and glucose tolerance right so in other words coming off of a fast or coming out of you know severely lower uh, severely restricted carbohydrate intake and things like that you have a decrease in your thyroid responsiveness a decrease in thyroid hormone receptors and your ability to tolerate carbohydrate and uh, you know have any semblance of glucose tolerance kind of goes into the crapper 
right? And there's research that goes back, to, you know, there's research in 2008, 2011, 2016, 2017, 2018. There's researchers all over the place. Uh, I've got them written down. I don't have the names of them off the top of my head, but I do remember that's the summary of the findings for stuff like that. So as the ratio of consumption of unsaturated fat to saturated fat increases, in other words, you have more unsaturated and, and polyunsaturated fats in the diet than you have saturated fats in the diet, because remember, you know, saturated fats are the devil and they'll kill you, even though that's also a lie, but that's what most people buy into. So the fats that they do consume or, you know, nut and seed oils and all this kind of stuff and even the, even the flours that they're eating uh, and using for their baking, you know, because they're trying to be health conscious or nut and seed flours and all this kind of stuff. So when your polyunsaturated fat to saturated fatty acid ratio and intake increases, uh, <clears throat> something increases in the body that's called SOD or it's a superoxide dismutase. And it also, uh, that increases as does your mitochondrial uncoupling. So remember cell membranes uh, are composed of fatty acids that you have consumed up to a given point in your lifespan. So, you know, I am currently, you know, almost 40 years old. The fats that I've consumed for my entire life uh, make up and constituate the physical structure of my cell membranes. So uh, lipid peroxidation and high levels of something that's called MDA uh, is also observed with excess polyunsaturated fat consumption. Um, the SOD or the superoxide uh, dismutase can be counteracted by something that's called glutathione, uh, which is you know one of the body's more powerful uh, antioxidants. Uh, but that capacity gets diminished over the course of time. So uh, what happens is you have an enhanced in the reductive state and uh, that kind of perpetuates the gain of electrons, so on and so forth. And all that kind of stuff is a hallmark of damaged physiology. And that also creates a shift in energy production that goes away from efficient energy production and oxid oxidative metabolism of glucose to the oxidation of fats which leads to a decrease in metabolic pliability. So uh, Holbert, the researcher that I talked about earlier, who mentioned an increase in longevity whenever there was a decrease in the peroxidation index, he notes that a 24% decrease in peroxidation index is associated with a doubling of the lifespan. And okay, so it's very interesting to me because I like to study the body and how it works and what's supposed to happen whenever we're actually in a happy, healthy, fully nourished, awesome state. And it's interesting to note that at birth, when you are born or when an individual is born and you fully incarnate onto the physical plane that we call the earth, an infant's mitochondria contain a, a, phos a phospholipid that's called cardiolipin. Cardiolipin contains the saturated fatty acid, uh, palmitic acid. Uh, palmitic acid, I believe, is a, a 16 or an 18 carbon uh, saturated fatty acid. 
As the baby is fed foods that contain polyunsaturated fats, and if you look at what's in what passes for baby formula these days, which is usually not stuff that I would feed to an intelligent animal, uh, they're loaded with polyunsaturated fats. So as the baby begins to feed and eats food or formulas that contain higher amounts of polyunsaturated fat, fatty acids, the palmitic acid in the cordiolipin is replaced with those unsaturated fats that the baby is now consuming. That makes the mitochondria of the cells less stable and decreases the ability to support the action of a key critical cellular respiratory enzyme that's called cytochrome oxidase. So what happens is you, you start to lose the ability to optimally produce energy which is basically a decrease in mitochondrial respiration, a decrease in oxygen utilization, an increase in lipid peroxidation or the peroxidation index for energy production, and you get a lifelong decrease in metabolic rate. And over the course of time, you're going to see decreases in longevity, uh, which is really easy to see right now. Don't get caught up into the fact that people keep lying to you and telling you that we're living longer now than we did whenever we, you know, than back in the day. Because that, that's a kind of a manipulation of the statistics. I believe if you look at it accurately, uh, if you take into account, uh, you know, improvements in sanitation, all of those whose lives are saved by emergency medicine, and the individuals who are currently on life support, uh, we're only living about a year and a half to two years longer than we did in 1930, which I believe uh, lifespan actually drops to like 38 and a half to, to 40 years or maybe 42 years, right? And that's usually about the time where people start to suffer from what Dr. Jeffrey Bland calls vertical disease, right? About th Dr. Jeffrey Bland, I believe, says the average person suffers a physical death at about the age of 35. <laughs> uh, so, you know, past the age of 35 or 40 or so, yeah, they're working around, they're walking around and they're vertical, but they're absolutely riddled with disease and they need, you know, a Yeti ice chest to be pulled behind them to hold all their medications so that they can get through the day. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Bland's work is, is, is really good stuff, kind of, uh, kind of advanced and a, a bit deep on the reading end, but he's got some good stuff. Uh, so for me, you know, a lot of this stuff, it makes less than no sense for someone with a, a stressed physiology because the average person, super stressed physiologically, usually in a hypometabolic state, you know, running around propped up by all sorts of stimulants and so on and so forth, whether it's coffee or whether it's energy drinks or five-hour energy or whatever, synthetic sugar that's, you know, put into the system every 30 minutes throughout the day, whatever the case may be, they're walking around with a stressed physiology it doesn't make any sense to me to further stress the physiology by fasting. Whether that be intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, so on and so forth. Right? Like I said, fasting in my world is anytime one's not meeting the calorie, nutrient, or metabolic needs of their body. So that includes skipping meals, restricting calories, going long periods of time without food, all that, all that kind of stuff. Which you know we do do as human beings, and it's within our normal physiological parameters to do so for the time in which you know the sun is down right so i'd say if you're going to do anything along those lines just do that You're like, all right well it gets dark at six o'clock uh and you know the sun comes up you know around 
six or six you know it depends on where you are right now but you know in my neck of the woods you know it's dark around six sunrise is around 6 14 somewhere or another so if you want to say all right you know past seven o'clock p.m i'm not going to eat until the sun comes up all right well the vast majority of that time you're going to be sleeping uh, and you're not going to be eating anyway so if you're going to do something like that just do it whenever you just you know do it whenever you're sleeping um of you know the exception of course uh is is the sleep so I've never had an issue with, with, with the narrative that it's a good idea maybe to avoid eating for an hour and a half or two hours prior to bedtime. I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Uh, I've heard some people say, you know, you need to, you need to not eat for three hours uh, before you go to bed. Eh, that doesn't work for me, uh, but for some people it might. You know, normal bedtime for me is 9.30 or 10, so that would put me eating my last meal at about 6.30 or 7. Uh, and if that's the case, you know, I could probably get away with that. Um, but usually, you know, more than a couple of hours uh, doesn't do me very well uh, for a number of different reasons. So for some people, that's just not possible. And for me, it's usually not. You know, full disclosure, and I've mentioned this, I think, in a previous podcast, I usually only make it about an hour. I'll eat and then... About an hour later, I'm going to bed. Hour and a half at a max. So if you combine that with you know seven to eight hours of sleep, that should take place each night. You have an intermittent fast of eight and a half to ten hours every single night whenever you're sleeping, which is what you're designed for anyway. So I don't necessarily have a problem with 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 that kind of a narrative, right? So you know whenever someone is overly stressed, which is very very common. In today's world, if you were to poll 100 people, I would probably say the vast majority of them, greater than 90%, would probably say they're a little more stressed out than not. Stress response uh, activate, activates uh, COX enzymes, that's uh, cyclooxygenase, uh, which makes uh, the inflammatory prostaglandins. Stress response activates aromatases, which makes estrogen. Stress response activates enzymes that promote a histamine response, activates serotonin, nitric oxide, cytokines, and stress hormones of the adrenals and the pituitary gland. So the more stressed your physiology is, the more prone your physiology becomes to activating stress hormone pathways, decreasing thyroid utilization and function. That decreases your insulin response, perpetuates inflammation, so on and so forth. So the vast, for the vast majority of people, fasting, calorie restriction, etc., is simply going to magnify the stress response. Right, like I said, yes, I can make the case that because you're doing that, you're eating less crap, you're eating less of the possibly eating less of the problematic amino acids and, and possibly consuming less polyunsaturated fats. And those would be the three benefits I would say you might get from, you know, eating far less than you need to be eating in order to sustain physiology. But as I said, there's ways to do that without having to eat less. It's just a restructuring of your foods. Right? You know? So I would say if you're one of these people who's sitting down, you know, doing this whole New Year's resolution thing, so on and so forth, and you and you want, uh, you know, some tips to get started, you know, I would say, first of all, whatever goals you have, write them down, put a plan together, uh, revisit that every so often, you know, whatever that means for you. For me, it's every quarter. For you, it might be every two weeks. Who knows? It doesn't matter. 
you know, and I would say get the general stuff down first before you start worrying about specifics, right? All these things, intermittent fasting, you know, carbohydrate cycling and all this, all these fancy dancy things that, you know, sound really cool and all that kind of stuff. A lot of people are trying to do that stuff and they haven't even mastered the general and the basic things that they need to be able to do in order to get where they want to go in terms of health, weight normalization, so on and so forth. So I would say, number one, it kind of goes without saying, if you're looking for things that are going to help you get started in terms of, it's going to be the behavioral changes uh, that are the biggest things uh, uh, compared to all the little detailed, nuanced stuff in, in your in your in your nutritional programming or in your exercise programming or whatever, you got to have the basics, you know, kind of mastered. So number one, I would say yes, avoid overeating. Duh. Right now, for a lot of people, that's kind. You know, we have a cultural. I guess it depends on where you're from. You know, but I'm I'm from Southern Louisiana, where, you know, if the day ends in Y, you know, it's an excuse to eat something and you know drink yourself halfway into oblivion okay and most people around my area eat until they're going to explode right and the average person is very familiar with that feeling you know what it feels like to be really really full right so i would say avoid that feeling you know probably eat until you're about 80% full ish right now for for a lot of people that's going to require that they eat a little bit slower uh, right because it takes uh, if i remember right it takes about 15 minutes for the satiety reflex to actually kick in right so there's a stupid little thing in your brain that's called the apostat which is looking for 51 52 or 53 particular nutrients in specific combination depending on who you're reading in order for the satiety reflex to be triggered takes about 15 minutes for that to happen so if you're eating you know like it's going to be your last meal and or you know like a famine is coming and you're it's very easy to overconsume, right because you can reach the point of being full not know it for another 15 minutes and you can put down a serious amount of food in that 15 minute period of time uh, i know i can <laughs> right so not eating and avoiding the feeling of being stuffed like a tick is or not overeating and avoiding that feeling of of being overly stuffed and say maybe eating 80% full it's okay not to feel like you literally cannot take another bite of food at the end of a meal All right so don't overeat uh eat real food All right so if it didn't walk run or swim don't eat it for protein if it didn't grow somewhere in nature don't eat it for carbohydrate that's a very general rule, right? I've got lots of uh, podcasts and articles on the specifics about stuff like that. Uh, but just eat real food, right? Drink the right amount of water as well. You know, cut out all of the other nonsensical stuff that people tend to drink nowadays. Uh, drink water. Um you know, somewhere about, you know, half of your body weight in ounces of clean water a day. So, if you know, if you're a 200-pound man, you're looking at about three liters of clean water in a day. Good to go, right? Find some form of movement that you enjoy and participate in that form of movement, you know, four to five times a week, every day if you can, 
you know, whatever that might be for you. I have a whole podcast. Again, I can't remember which number, but I believe I did a podcast on, uh, you know, questions about on exercise. Uh, so if you want a, a little more details on that particular topic, check out, uh, I don't know what episode it is, but it, I have an episode. It's it's Q, exercise Q&A, I believe is the name of the episode. Um, so get, you know, move, get some movement, right? Get some sleep, right? If you're somebody who normally goes to bed at midnight, I would say a fantastic part of your New Year's resolution should be to be in bed by 10 o'clock. And, you know, whatever, it could take you six months to get to that point. You could roll it back 30 minutes a month. All right, well, for the first month, I'm going to go to bed at 1130. Second month, I'm going to go to bed at, you know, 11. You know, third month, I'll go to bed at 1030. By the end of the fourth month, I should be in bed by 10 o'clock. You know, cut yourself back slowly. Go in 15-minute increments. I don't care. Whatever you want to do. But take steps to get yourself to bed, you know, preferably no later than 1030. Right? Staying up till midnight and disrupting your physical and anabolic repair cycles is not doing you any good if you're trying to improve your health, your longevity, drop a few pounds, whatever. And actually, uh, issues with sleep correlate with obesity probably more than anything else uh, in the United States and just globally if you look at the statistics for most countries uh, so you know those are just the basic things man not overeating eating some real food drinking the right amount of water get some movement get some exercise uh, you know don't overdo that kind of stuff don't think you have to kill yourself whenever you go into the gym or don't think if oh you're going to start you, you know you want to become a runner you haven't run since the reagan administration and now you're going to start by running a 5k every day that's stupid don't do that do something a little more intelligent break yourself in slowly make it something that's sustainable something that you can do for an extended period of time and that you can stick with and that you enjoy because you know the small things add up to the big things right Improve your sleep. Get more of it. Uh, you know, whatever you got to do. Uh, get get the basics and the generals down. And then you can move into things that are more specific. Uh, but, you know, I know a lot of people had asked me about, you know, my thoughts on intermittent fasting, so on and so forth. So I thought that I would put together a podcast, even though I don't know how well put together this thing was. I kind of just ran my mouth. Uh, my last few have been that way. I apologize if that bothers anybody, but I haven't had time to sit down and write out, not scripts, but like my bullet points for, uh, podcasts and things like that because I've just been too busy with everything else, uh, you know, both work and life related, uh, so, you know, I would say, you know, yes. You know, all the stuff, you know, the restriction of the polyunsaturated fats, uh, which reduce metabolic pliability, uh, that kind of stuff needs to be compared with the so-called decreased rate of living theories that perpetuate science and so on to ascertain what really increases longevity. You know, for me, it's beyond nonsensical to continue to perpetuate and promote, you know, the rate of living theory that create more disorder and chaos than they do creating order and pliability. Right, so whenever we do stuff like that, we just it just leads to a slow death of cellular function, and ultimately, it decreases our health and longevity. Longevity. <clears throat> so I've mentioned before that energy production and energy conservation is the basis of thriving in life, and for overcoming all threats. Uh, threats. You could also put the word stressors there, right? <clears throat> so if you're going to overcome any level of stress or stressors 
energy production and conservation is the basis of thriving in that way and it must be conserved in readiness for your future needs that's going to require you to eat the right foods at the right time in the right combinations for your physiology doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be fasting intermittent fasting or cutting way back on your calories those things tend to create more disorder and chaos than anything so fasting for me outside of what occurs during sleep and maybe a couple of hours prior to sleep in any capacity is not the answer for health and longevity in my opinion so hopefully there's something that you can take away from you know I don't even know where I'm at where am I I'm a little over an hour Hopefully, there's something you can take away from this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, get get with this, get with the generals. Uh, the you know the water. E- you know, eating real food. Don't overeat. Get some movement. Optimize your sleep or get more of it if you're sleep deprived. So on and so forth. I've got other individual episodes of podcasts that deal with sleep, that deal with movement, that deal with uh, you know the, the the issues of fat. And, and carbohydrate intake and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if I've done the protein one yet. I actually can't even remember. Um, but be very consistent with with the general principles of health. And over the course of time, you can worry about all of the specifics and the details of programming, nutrition, and, and uh, even exercise and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Hopefully there's a couple of takeaways from it. Feel free to get at me with any questions or comments or concerns or whatever. You can go through um, my website, email, social media, you know, whatever. Um, always looking for input. Always looking for feedback. I appreciate you guys for listening. Uh, again, hope you guys all had a Merry Christmas and are, you know, getting off to a pretty good start here in uh, 2021. And I'll catch you guys later. That concludes this episode. Thank you for listening to Brandon Speaks. Feel free to reach out to Brandon via his website, www.innatemovewell.com. You can also send any thoughts you may have or suggest future podcast topics to innatemovewell at gmail.com. Brandon would love to hear from you. Follow him on his social media sites, which can be accessed through his website. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button, leave a review, and share this podcast with anyone interested in taking their performance, health, and wellness to the next level. Hope to see you on the next episode. Until then, support the process of healing. And thanks again for listening to Brandon Speaks.